Hello again, Natalie. Hi, Jeff. Here we are for our third podcast. We're starting to get some under our wings now. We are. We're building a season. Yes, corn dog is slowly growing. <laughs> <laughs> we're cooking the corn dog. Yeah. Well, what do we have today? Well, today we've got, let's see, a few songs um, and part two of a really interesting interview with Peter Coleman. Y'all heard part one last week. And here we have part two. It's it, And I think it's at least as good as the first one. I mean, it was a very difficult thing to find a middle for because <laughs> he talks so fast <laughs> and he's, it's all so interesting. All right. And then we have, uh, as usual, Wyndham doing a live show, a live song at the end. Amazing. More Woody Guthrie tunes. Very good. All right. Let's go. Here we go. It's the Jalopy Corn Dog Hour with your host, Natalie Jordan and Jeff Wood. Recorded right here at the fabulous Jalopy Theater and School of Music in Red Hook, Brooklyn. So, without further ado, here we go. Ozark Highballers. 
doing a song called Lazy Farmer. It's off of a record that's out on Jalopy Records called Going Down 11 Point. It's one of my favorites. Um, the Ozark Highballers are a really cool string band. They're based in Arkansas, um, in the mountains there, and I heard that they met at a farmer's market out there, which I think is really sweet. And that band's got Roy Pilgrim, Clark Buehling, Seth Shoemate, and Aviva Steigmeier. All very amazing musicians and... And really sweet people. And really sweet people. Lovely to see them at the festival every time. Hmm. Well, let's let's go back to Peter. Peter Coleman. Here's part two of our talk with Peter Coleman from Retrofret. So I learned today... Um, we put out a banjo, and uh, it was a Gibson Master Tone TB3 from 1928. Oh, Lord. And it had been refinished in the 50s or mm. 60s, which is what all the old men used to do because they, they wanted to look new and shiny. That banjo looks old. you got to refinish and replate it. So you know, we didn't put it out for an enormous amount of money, but it's, it's a high-quality instrument. It sounds every bit as fine as it did. It just It's a little brighter, a little shinier, and it's sunburst instead of natural. Um, but... Uh, Glendon downstairs, who you know well, who runs our mandolin department, picked it up, and he was playing it, and he went, wow, that plays really easy. It's a shorter scale. And I was like, huh? And I looked at it, and boop, he's right. It's a 21-inch scale banjo in a year when Gibson supposedly wasn't making 21-inch scale banjos anymore. It's one of those catalog options nobody ever exercised. Well, here it is. Someone exercised it. And I didn't, I, I'd been handling this thing for several days. I'd had it rebuilt, and I hadn't even noticed so I learned, wow, even in 1928, Gibson was still making short-scale banjos if you ordered one. So it's an ongoing process. Every time I handle an old instrument, I learn something new. Have, um, you, have you collected old catalogs and, and primary kind of stuff? Or oh, that- hell yes. <laughs> hell yes. I have a bookcase, you know, the size of this faux fireplace here that's just old catalogs and stuff. And the most interesting thing Sometimes is is also there were um, magazines published, you know, 100, 120 years ago, all about fretted instruments, and they're mostly oh, full of, no yeah, and they're mostly full of. He says with a deep sigh, they're full of the most tedious, oh, pedantic <laughs> teachers arguing about the way things should be played, and oh, those kids today, you know, they're playing this terrible music, and they should be playing the classics on the banjo, but there are little, all sorts of little things in there, and there are ads, and there are little commentaries, and it really helps you to learn how these things were viewed in context when they were new. Like, historians call things primary and secondary sources. So a secondary source is someone writing, well, in 1865, General Grant did this. A primary source is General Grant or his lieutenant colonel recording at the time. And the general said to me today, so what I like to find are the things about fretted instruments that are primary source. So if I'm thinking about a banjo made in 1905, I've got the catalog for it. And the catalog may be lying to you virulently. They often do. (laughs) And or a magazine article or a piece of advertisement that or or a a prominent player talking about how they should be played, which is almost universally not the way we want to play them today. But it's fascinating to see how that develops. Like, I know you play a lot of old-time banjo. Almost all the banjos you're handling were not meant to have steel strings put on them. And nobody understands that because in the 1920s, people started putting steel strings on them because that, that was the accepted thing to do. So a lot of them have been ruined. Some of them have survived. 
these older guitars from the 1890s and early 1900s, they're all meant to have gut strings. Nobody puts, steel strings on a guitar were considered crude and, and poor taste and poor judgment because a good set of gut strings would cost you more than a cheap steel string guitar. So the thing that, that really taught me is we see all of this stuff in reverse because most, and, and again, I'm talking to Eli here specifically because what we learn about a lot of these instruments comes through itinerant players playing them who frankly the people who made them would have been horrified by for the most part you know when gibson was making guitars they weren't thinking of some hillbilly in arkansas buying it and making a couple of records you know they did if you were successful they would recognize that like the monroe brothers appear in gibson catalogs the carter family you know would get a certain amount of notoriety oh they're playing a gibson and they make records for victor you know uh, that became a thing but generally these companies were not making instruments for these people, these frankly poor people who couldn't afford a good instrument, they're making instruments for rich middle class people. And they were marketed towards that kind of direction. All those LOOs that all hillbilly and blues players love today, those were intended for students in teaching studios. And they happen to be cheap enough and good quality enough that if you say you got a gig, it's hard to remember now the way the music industry has worked. But in 19, Say it's 1932. It's the heart of the Depression. Let's, 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 let's take the Wayback Machine and go back exactly <laughs> 90 years to the fall of 1932. The Depression is still really screwing up most Americans' ability to earn a living. Uh, the record industry has pretty much collapsed, if you're into the history of the record industry, which is a fascinating and weird and yeah. dishonest and evil but also beautiful history. The only way a musician can really make money is people have discovered that the radio is a very powerful marketing tool. And if you want to market to a group of people, say, in rural Virginia, well, how are you going to get them to listen to your radio show? Well, you find a band that plays music that a lot of them like, and you put them on the radio. So suddenly there were these jobs for people, but they didn't pay that well. And there was this huge uh, competition to get a paying job you know, and not have to work at the mill. And that turned into a whole thing, and that ended up making a market for these cheaper instruments that had been mostly marketed to kids and students before that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cheaper, the cheaper Gibsons and Martins and Nationals that we now revere as the great instruments that, that all this old, what they called hillbilly music at the time, which I, you know, I guess they, I don't know what we should call it now, but I, I like hillbilly music because that's what it was called. You know, oh, are you a hillbilly entertainer? Yes, sir. People were proud of that. That was a, that was a thing. But those guitars were never designed for that kind of music. But it's what we now see them as, you know, the, the, the talismanic instruments of all that kind of music. Yeah. And when, um, you hear the, when you hear the sound, you're like, there yeah, it is. There it is. That's that record. That's, if you listen, I'm a huge fan of the Monroe Brothers. And, you know, I don't play mandolin well, but when I wanted a mandolin, I wanted the mandolin that sounded just like those records. Yeah. And um, I got it. It was at the time I bought it the most expensive thing I'd ever bought in my life. But you know what? I have to say this. It still sounds like those records. I've never learned. I mean, I can fake it a little bit, but I've never really learned to play like Bill Monroe did in 1934. But goddamn, I'm going to pick up that mandolin. If I knew it properly, that thing would do exactly what it's supposed to do. That's the most honest thing in the world. You know, that sound comes out of that instrument. And if you can create that sound with your hands, you've got, you've got lightning in a bottle. You've got magic. You have the magic you know, in your hand. And if you listen to enough, it's a great you know, feeling. it's a great feeling. Well, also the music that we're talking about is very, it's, it's very orally, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, honest music. You know what I mean? It, when you're listening to the skillet liquors, that's just four people banging away and a microphone hung next to them. And that's yeah. the sound that you get. 
we're so used to now every sound we hear is manipulated to an epic degree. Yeah. Even if someone sits down with one microphone on a guitar now, they go through a digital processing unit the size of three refrigerators. Yeah. You know, that was basically when you're recording those records, they weren't even, uh, they were recorded electrically with an electric mic, but they were sent to disc. They weren't recorded to tape. Recording tape didn't exist yet. So you're literally hearing the physical sound passing through a mic and getting scratched in to a master disc, so that, that's as close as you get. So when you, it, it's really exciting when you have that sound in your head and you pick up a musical instrument, it's like, well, dang, that's that sound. Yeah. You know, the, I, I, got, I was really into Charlie Poole as well, I still am. Yeah. You pick up, you know, one of those little Martins, little O-sized Martins with big enough strings on it, and you, I am, I am Posey Roar. You know, there it is, bang, bang, bang. That's what that thing sounds like. Yeah. I, that's one of the things that's always excited me, and I, I my musical, Obsession began with 50s and 60s rock and roll and you know everything that went with it And I wanted you know Rickenbacker Charles string because that's what the birds and the Beatles had And I wanted yeah. the Gretsch because that's what the birds and the Beatles had you know and all these instruments I wanted the Gretsch because that's what Eddie Cochran and Bo Diddley had and you know That's that's it's a little harder to get to you know if you listen to uh, Monroe Brothers 78 and you hear Charlie playing his Gibson Jumbo and Bill playing that F7. That's it. That's the sound you got. Their voices, that's all there is. You listen to the birds, you're hearing Columbia Studios and, you know, Pothek uh, compressors and equalizers and things like that. But still, there's still that excitement about it. And I think that's one of the reasons I got less interested in music as the 70s and 80s went along. Is it's become so processed now. Rock and pop, there is no music to me left in it. But you know, there, there are and there's people I still like. I still there. I still hear things I like. But just the way it's recorded doesn't really get me much anymore. But I'm an old man now, so who cares what I think? <laughs> you know. Um, but it is it, it is interesting, and I a lot of younger players I talk to, I think are really looking for that. I hate to use the word authenticity because that's an overworked word, but they're looking for a way to connect really directly to a sound that inspires them. You know, yeah. and, and the more simple the, the music is, the, the easier it is to hear it and hear when you've got it and hear when you don't got it. Yeah. You know, if I want to sound like Uncle Dave Macon, that's him sitting there with the banjo. You know, either you got it in your hands. I didn't have it in my hands, unfortunately, because I'd love, I'd love to sound like Uncle Dave Macon. But I, I can fake it for about a minute. But I bet you can come a lot closer than I can. We'll have to do an act one day. <laughs> you, you play it, I'll sing it. Okay. Um, Sounds great. But, you know, I... I and again, you know, we're, we're ranging far and wide from the topic of vintage instruments, but I, I am known among my, my peers and people who, who like me and people who strongly dislike me as this almost insane, um, it's like I'm the Pope. It's like I have this philosophy of Catholicism about guitars, like just play a good guitar, play the right, play the guitar you really want. Don't screw it up, don't mess around with it. Yeah. Find the one that does what you want it to do and then just do it. You know, I'm I'm I, I am a laughing stock amongst my younger colleagues because I don't when I play electric instruments I don't use any effects I don't use any I've never used a guitar pedal in my life unless I'm doing a session for someone say hey I want you to use this pedal all right you you plug it in you set yeah. it the way you want it I don't care you know I put it, I got an echo box and an amplifier I actually heard a great um I, I, you guys know who Wilco Johnson was no uh, Wil that? Wilco Johnson was the uh, guitar player in a band called Doctor Feelgood who right before English punk almost took over the world. They were the band that really set the pace for English punk rockers, but they were more of a, a really kind of classic R&B band, but they had their own sound. And his guitar playing, if you've never heard it, is absolutely singular. Um, he played with his fingers. He played kind of rhythm and lead at the same time. 
and he just kind of banged away. And he, he, just, he just died earlier this week, oh. uh, 10 years after being given a death sentence. Um, might be more familiar to more modern types because he played an executioner on Game of Thrones. Uh, which is a gig he had absolutely no interest in really doing, but he just did it because it, you know, it paid well, and he just had to sit there and glower at people. Yeah. Um, and he said he liked doing it, but he was given a cancer diagnosis and told he had six months to live, and he said, well, screw this acting thing. I'm going to go back to playing music. Wow. And he kept going for another 10 years. Wow. But um, I actually forgot where I was going with this. But, oh, anyway. Um, well, just but, he, but he said someone, um, uh, an interviewer asked him you know, decades ago, it's like, but what about pedals? He goes, Pedals? Oh, I'm a guitarist, not a fucking bicyclist. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the way I look at it, too. Yeah. Um, I, I see modern bands, even bands that I like, you know, and, I, and you know, my only connection to modern music is like, I've, I've watched the Stephen Colbert shows. Oh, is there someone interesting on it? And I see these kids, you know, young enough to be almost my grandkid at this point, and they'll have a pedal board the size, I'm not kidding, the size of a refrigerator at their feet. Yeah. Like, do you even know what your guitar sounds like? Right, and why, why does this even matter? Why does this, why, what have you done? Right. It's like you've, you've taken what, whatever sound you can create, and there are people who use it creatively, but I think most people at this point don't even know what they're doing with it anymore. It says, oh, you need this, you need that, you need all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm known for this, you know, really prosaic and um, perhaps a little too aggressive attitude that the sound is in your fingers. But if you know anyone who's a good player, you can hand them any guitar, and the sound is in their fingers. I used to, um, I used to play uh, years ago. I played bass for a, a fellow who's a very, very good guitar player, Richard Lloyd, who'll be familiar to some of the some of the older readers. Um, and he's, you know, this this man is is renowned as an absolutely world class guitar player, and he was playing through this crap pedal board. And we did a rehearsal one day. And he plugged straight into he plugged his Stratocaster into a Deluxe, and I went, Richard throw the pedal board away. This is, this is your sound. This, listen to your fan. He's like, well, but he, he was flattered because I, you know, <laughs> I, I set my criticism as flattery, which is, is I've learned over the years is a, is a really good way to get people to listen to you. Yeah. And he, he kind of knew what I meant, but he was, he was, even he was, even he was a master's technique who can, who can spellbind to people just bending a string, felt like he had to use, frankly, a really mediocre, poorly constructed pedal board to get over to an audience. And I just thought that was such a sham, yeah. you know, and, and sad. He was ruining his own sound. Um, but I, I dared to say so in the presence of the master. So <laughs> there you go. But it also comes from being a bass player. And I see bass players now with, a, with a, an effects thing the size of the refrigerator. And I'm like, what are you doing? What the hell is, is at your feet? Like, it's four strings or five strings if you're trying too hard. And a chord, you know, if you can't get a sound out of that, you're not, this stuff is not going to help you, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, but it all ties into, you know, one of the nice things about selling vintage instruments is they do have a distinctive sound. And I notice how quickly I'm segueing back into a useful thread. <laughs> but a lot of modern guitars to me are built to have no sound because they're built to be used as a, as a tone generator for an effects rack. Yeah. So yeah. they're kind of built to not have a really distinctive character. Like I, I could pick oh, up any one of ten instruments over here, and it will do what it does. Like I, I, Gretsch sixty one twenty over there does a certain thing, and you can modify what it does, but it does a thing all by itself. A Fender Jaguar does a different thing, hmm. and I like the fact that they don't do the same thing. And I like the fact that one won't do. But a lot of I think got to be a thing among professional players that you want one guitar to do everything and it should sound like an acoustic and it should sound like an electric 
And to me, that's boring. And it's actually like... Like um, you playing the Stella earlier. Yeah, yeah that's... I mean, it, that has that's, yeah. so distinctive a It sound. is what it does. And if you know how to take it, if you have something in your head, it's like you're a cook and you have a recipe for that meal. That's the ingredient that will make that meal for you. Like if your fingers and your brain know what you want it to do, it's like that's it. I've I've made yeah. that I've made that connection. I've found that place. You know, I think a lot of modern players don't don't get that with modern gear. You know what I mean? Because they're not they're not thinking that this thing has to have its own character. It's like it's just kind of a it's something that I use and I make music with it. And I've, I've interacted with a lot of my younger staff members. I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of known as the guy who answers a million questions and says, and why you, do, why, you know, what are you doing with that? Why are you doing that? And um, they think I'm archaic, but I guess it has some, some value to people. But uh, I, I have a theory. I have a theory. I have a theory, which is mine. I also listen to way too much Monty Python as a youth. <laughs> I have a theory, which is mine. And it's mine. And it's my theory, which is mine. Um, no, I consider, I, th I think of the instruments, does anyone here heard the word alembic? It was a guitar brand, but it has a much deeper meaning. The alembic is the vessel that an alchemist uses to take base ingredients and turn them into gold. So probably a more modern thing would be, if, if you're for the Harry Potter fans, the wand. The wand doesn't create the magic. The magic is in you. But the wand translates the music. The alembic takes the bass yeah. element. So to me, a musical instrument that inspires you is the alembic. It's the wand that takes whatever magic you're capable of creating and makes it real. And that, that to me, is a really important thing about it. And when you see that somebody do that, it can be pretty inspiring. When you put the right instrument in someone's hand, you see their eyes kind of light up like, that. Oh, that's, that's, the, you know, that's the sound. That's what I've been hearing in my head. Or that's that's yeah. the sound I've always wanted. And, and yeah. been searching for. And you know sometimes you can find it and sometimes you can't. I've been really lucky because I, I'm a fairly educated searcher. So I, I can pretty much find any sound that I want. Um, there's a couple I can't afford, but the, you know I know what they would be. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I've pretty much in my life been able to find every sound that I wanted. And that's, that's pretty inspiring. Um, there was a, I played a club called The Beat in Portchester in 1988. And I'd always remember that night because the mist was in the air. No, anyway, um, in the, the the place was was crowded and sweaty, and I had a bass I had just recently gotten, which is a and this is this is for all the vintage geeks like me. I'm going to tell you everything about it, okay? So just Sounds listen. Good. Listen up. We want to hear. It's a 1964 uh, May 64 Sonic Blue Precision uh, with the original Labella flatwound strings on it. And I was playing it through a 1966 Dual Showman with two JBLs, which is my stage amp. And I plugged it in. I think it might have been the first time I actually gigged this bass, which I had moved heaven and hell to obtain. Um, and if you want to know why, I'll tell you that in a minute. But I plugged it in, and I turned it up to about five. I went, dunk, dunk, dunk. that's the perfect bass sound. It's like, that's it. My entire life has led up yeah, to this moment. Awesome. I've got it. That's the exact per And the salmon goes... Are you turning the bass down a little? I went, no, that's the perfect bass sound. Boop. And he's like, oh, okay. And, and by the end of the night, the room was so hot and sweaty, I'd kind of, I'd lost a little of the edge on the strings, but I, I can say for one night with that 64 precision, I got the perfect bass sound. And I'm still ple I'm pleased about it, you know, many, many years later. And, and I actually did, I used to work occasionally with Mark Lindsay, who's the singer for Paul Vu and the Raiders, Who's a, I'm a band I'm an enormous fan of. 
Um, but he's just a really down-to-earth guy. But I did a session for him, and I took that bass with those strings on it, and we plugged it into um, some kind of tube compressor. He goes, ah, it sounds just like Western Recorders in 1965. Right, Mark, that was the exact idea. <laughs> so, you know, he knows. <laughs> he got, cool. got the sound that he was looking for. So that, those moments are always inspiring to me. It's like if there's a sound that you hear in your head. Absolutely. And I, I, did a, I did a bird's kind of, I hate to use the word tribute. It's not, a, it's not a pinging tribute. You know, you're playing someone's songs. You're playing them well, you're playing them poorly, you're making them your own, or you're trying to sound just like them, or whatever. But, you know, oh, it's a tribute to this and that. No, it's not. You're just stealing someone's material, <laughs> for better or worse. So, but I did one of these bird's evenings, and, and I was rehearsing with the guys who were putting the band together, and I was playing a 1964 jazz bass with the original labella flat wound strings. And the guy who was the drummer, who's a very good producer engineer, was like, that sounds just like the records. How are you doing that? I'm like, well, I have exactly the same bass Chris Hillman had on those records with the same strings on it. Yeah. He goes, because my bass player is a jazz bass. It doesn't sound at all like that. I'm like, what has he got on it? Well, I don't know. Like, well, he's probably got round rounds on it, and they're probably light gates, and they sound like this. Yeah. And my bass sounds like this. Dunk, 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 dunk. And that's, the, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what he wants, and you want. That's what yeah. you need to it's, do. It's, you know? it's like a secret that you have to unlock. Yeah. It's, it's, in a way, it's obvious yeah. on a certain level, but yeah. and yet it's elusive. it can yeah. be very elusive. One of the greatest dumbass things I ever saw was there was this video that came. Remember when they used to do all these... Uh, like learn to play this or learn to play that videos. Like, and there's a video, I think Jim Weider did it, who's a fabulous guitar player, if you ever heard him play. But it says the video is how to get that real Fender sound. And it's like, <laughs> buy a real Fender guitar <laughs> and a real Fender amp. Yeah. And then move your fingers around. <laughs> Burp, done. <laughs> you know? yeah, but they, they managed to get an hour video or 90 right. minute video out of that. How to get that real Fender sound. It's like, buy a Telecaster, yeah. you know, buy a good <laughs> yeah. Telecaster. Right. Um, you know, but that's and again, sometimes sometimes my attitude comes across perhaps as a tad arrogant. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's there are certain things that are kind of self-evident. There's certain truths that are self-evident. If you're really inspired by a certain sound, what's the first thing you should do? Well, figure out how they made it, and yeah. then then get as close as you can to that. And you're not going to sound just like it anyway. But that may be the pathway to discovering your own sound. I mean, certainly for me, uh, my I think I have at this point. I mean. If I got up tonight, if I went over to Jalopy, the fabulous Jalopy Theater, which is, by the way, I'm not making this up just because Jeff's here. That is like the, my favorite room to play I've ever played in my life. Really wow, is. Really? It's, it's, well, it's, just, it's so friendly. Yeah. Most places are not friendly to musicians anymore. Some of them never were. But it's, it's really, you, you know, I feel musicians feel valued there. And really, generally, we do not. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. really, I don't think that's news to anybody. You know, you're, you're there to draw a crowd. You're there to not annoy people too much. That's sort of the way it goes. But anyway, um, I, I totally forgot where I was going with this. I had a great point. I was flogging something, and then I, I looped over onto Jalopy. Oh, no. And, and I completely, I, com I, I, I think I've lost the thread. Um, but it was something, was re it was something really important and <laughs> profound. We were talking about, you know, the point that you had just oh. made, which... Finding was, your sound. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Finding your sound. Yes. So I, you know, I I played there a bunch of times with different people, but I did a show there I, for my 60th, 60th birthday, 50th birthday. My God, it's so long. It's my 50th birthday, and I think that night was the first time I'd gone out as a solo act in a long time, and I really felt like I had like finally after 
you know, years of playing music, like, this is what I sound like. Like, I stood there and went, yeah, I actually have a sound. I was doing mostly my own songs, but other people's songs. But the, the combination of they were all hand-chosen to say a certain thing. And I really felt like maybe at the, at the age of turning 50, I'd, I'd actually found, you know, not a band. I've been in bands that had their own sound. But I felt like I actually found my yeah. own sound. And I think if you're a musician, that's the ultimate goal. What is your? What do you bring to it that no one else does? Like you, with the, to me, one of the stupidest things is people will bring someone in here. Oh, he's a great guitar player. She's a great guitar player. Like, well, what do they sound like? Oh, they can do anything. They can play country or jazz or blues and rock. I was like, yeah, but what do they sound like? What is this person's, this human being's sound? And a lot of times the answer is they don't have one because they're a great guitar player and they can play anything. But that's to me is worthless. I don't. I'm not interested in someone who can play anything. I'm interested in someone who who always sounds like themselves regardless of their level of technique. Yeah. So I'm really interested in what George Van Epps will do, and I'm really interested in what Link Ray will do, because they sound like themselves. I'm interested in what Bo Diddley will do, or what Tel Farlow will do, because they don't sound like anybody else. I don't really give a crap what some session guy will do who can sound like all of them, because that's not interesting to me. Like what, it, it, I guess it's good if you're making records, because they can, you can capture any sound, but I, I find that to be the, the most boring thing, is someone who can sound like anybody. I'd rather someone who has no technique, but sounds like themselves. You know, I, I hate to say Link Ray Hazel Atkins. You know, it's like <laughs> something like yeah. that. Like, what's? I don't care if it's the crudest thing on earth or the most sophisticated thing on earth, as long as it's unique, as long as it's yours. So that's the hardest thing I think to, to really come up with. Especially, I, I think I'm, I'm talking to Eli here specifically because we both work in in kind of recreating vintage music styles. So a certain element of that has got to be reductive. You're taking things other people have done. But I think that the challenge is to funnel it through yourself and have it come out as your own version of it. I think one person I would say does that is, is I hate to call her little Nora anymore because she's not so little, but I think Nora has mastered that. You know, I don't know where she's going to go. And this is, I'm promoting a performer who often plays at the Jalopy Theater. Yes, um, this is on our the, record label. But this is a, and it's on the Jalopy record label. Yeah. But she's someone I think has, and she's not there yet because she's still young, but I think she's found a way to channel, you know, because she started really copying things directly. And I think as she grows as a performer, that will be channeled into her. I've heard, started to hear it the last time she was here. It's like, oh yeah, she's, she's started to sound like herself now. You know, she's she's taken input from all these banjo players in this very classic style, and it's coming out. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what she'll sound like in ten years, when she's like a really seasoned musician, because she's so good now. But it will, I think, it will turn into something really. I hope it'll turn into something really interesting. You know, something that's that's unique, that's a human sound that's completely unique. I mean, that that again, that's the interesting thing to me. You know, getting back to yeah. uh, get, that, well, you know, that's part of the magic of of the old records is that at, there was like a, a moment 100 years ago or whatever where some, like you say, people that may have had a lot of technique or may not have had a lot of technique made one record or made two records or something, and you can, that's, you can hear that, and that's shocking compared to what you, you hear in modern mass-marketed music. Yeah, we're dealing and, with people yeah, who, who's in, whose input was so specific. Yeah. You know, before the Victrola was in a lot of rural homes, the only music a lot of musicians could hear was whatever was played locally. Yeah. So you get, you know, in the in the in Bill Monroe being such an obvious example because he his roots are documented. He talked about them. You know, Charlie Poole died 
you know, in 1930, so he never talked about it. I can tell you some of what he listened to. He, li he listened to Van Epps on the banjo mm -hmm. a lot because he played Van Epps' pieces. Yeah. So he was a sophisticated musician. But someone like Monroe, what did he really hear? Well, he heard a black guitar player who, you know, played for, for change, and he, heard, and he heard the fiddle bands that his family played in, and that was really his only major influences. And he heard singing, you know, the family yeah. would sing a cappella songs. So it's this sort of limited palette he put together into an utterly personal style. Yeah. And, but he's such a specific example because his style was utterly personal from day one. You know, or the Delmore brothers, you know, who had another really, really personal, totally different style. And he wrote, uh, Elton uh, wrote a little bit. Uh, there's a wonderful book that Elton Delmore wrote here. If you're interested in the old hillbilly musics, uh, a book called Truth is Stranger Than Publicity, which is absolutely, if, uh, Eli, have you read this book? Yeah, I, yes, I, uh, Eli has read that. He, Eli's laughing at it. That is the best book on early country music ever written, written by the person who was, you know, smack dab in the middle. But talking about how those people founded their styles and what they went through, you know, to be able to create music that they could make a living off of, because it really wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And the, if you listen to the Delmore Brothers, they're a wonderful act. I mean, super professional from day one, smooth vocal blend, amazingly sophisticated guitar work for where, the, where and when they came from. And they had trouble holding a job, you know, because they, they basically really wasn't valued that much. You know, how many, how many listeners are you bringing to the radio show? How much flour are they selling? Or how much, you know, crazy water crystals are we selling this week? Oh, you guys, you kids, you're not bringing in enough revenue here. We're going to switch you out for someone else. You know, it's hugely competitive, um, kind of, I guess, kind of like it is today in a way, in, in very different ways. But, um, you know, the music business has always been a really bad cutthroat, horrible cutthroat, you, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I would love to have made a living as a musician, but I realized fairly early on that I was not suited for the music business um, for a variety of reasons and kind of discovered if I wanted to do that, I had to be in a, in a band organization with someone else who would do all the ass kissing um, that was required and do all the you know desperate love me, find me uh, stuff that's required, which I'm just not good at. Um, but you know, it's it, when you see what some of these performers were able to achieve even in the face of that, it's it's pretty inspiring. Um, if you go back and listen to you know to people who are basically playing their heart out, sometimes to nobody. Uh, these days, everyone reveres uh, Skip James. Um, you know, if you hear his records, talk about someone who's an individual. But at the time, those records sold like crap. Nobody wanted them. They weren't what the black audience wanted to hear, really, in 1930, 31. Now they're absolute treasures of Americana, but at the time they were considered failures, and that's true to me of a lot of the great, you know. A lot of the great music that we like was uh, some of it was successful, some of it wasn't. You know, <laughs> some of it was considered commercially useless at the time. Uh, some of these instruments, you know, again, I'm trying to keep keep us on sort of on topic. Well, but some of the instruments here, there's some really fabulous instruments here that didn't sell worth a damn when they were new. That's what makes them rare now, and um, you know, rare isn't always a good thing. Yeah. But mo things that are rare, mostly rare, because nobody bought it, for whatever reason. You know, things that aren't rare were produced in numbers because they were hit, and enough people bought them, you can find one now. You have an example but, of that? Um, well, you know, you look around and you think, well, you know, there's a... I'm looking at a Fender Jaguar, and one of the things that most annoys me is, like I say, second-generation history, people who write history from the point of view of not what was really happening originally. So if you read a bunch of books now that are written by people who grew up in the 80s, 
oh, the Fender Jaguar was a failure. You know, it was never, never an important guitar. It's like, well, no. You look at pictures of bands in 1962, 63, and 64, it was the most popular guitar in the world, briefly. There's a real specific reason it fell out of favor. It, it only works with heavy gauge strings. And when rock and roll really got going and, and Fender put out a set called the Fender Rock and Roll Set, which is 8 to 38, they sabotaged their own creation. A Jaguar can't be played with strings like that. But the people who don't understand that, just, oh, that guitar is a failure. There's all sorts of things wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it when it's used as intended. And that's true of a lot of these instruments. When used as intended, there's nothing, you know, their, their supposed flaws are not flaws when used in the context they're designed for. But we, we live in a kind of post-rock boom culture yeah. where all these instruments are seen through how useful are they for the, like the music of 1971, you know, kind of thing. So from an acoustic point of view, like the, all these little Martin guitars were considered really worthless for years because you, you couldn't play the, you know, big, powerful rhythm guitar on them. You know, they weren't good to play uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young stuff. You need a dreadnought for that. Well, they sound fantastic. They record beautifully, but they got this reputation as not doing the gig because nobody used them for that. You know, now we're finding the opposite. As I find a lot of people are interested in the instruments that were uh, Jaguars and Little Martins, especially yeah. instruments that were poo-pooed for years and considered not a success. Well, they were successes in their original context. They were just judged not a success by later standards. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of ideas. I mean, I, the acoustic guitar tends to be more conservative because it has to make a sound all by itself. So there's some, there's some pretty weird acoustic. I could show you some acoustic guitars that are just ill-considered, and then some that are great designs that just didn't catch on for whatever reason. The electric guitar, because of the freedom of the constraint of it doesn't have to have a sound chamber, uh, can get a lot more archaic. So, you know, we've got a lot of guitars made of wood. I've got guitars made of plastic. I've got guitars made of metal. And they'll all make a sound. Um, but a lot of times, players tend to be very conservative, and they're looking for something that they've sort of already seen or heard. And as the electric guitar got older and the acoustic guitar got older and the steel string guitar, I think people more and more focused on um, kind of the obvious if that makes any sense. And the arcane and the obscure often got swept under the rug. Uh, I have a couple really beautiful Larson Brothers guitars over here. The Larsons, their whole story, you can do a whole uh, evening just on the Larson Brothers. But there were these two Swedish brothers, and they started making steel string guitars really early in the 20th century, like a couple decades before Martin got into it. And nobody really knew them for decades because they didn't put their name on them. And they're a connoisseur's thing, but to this day, most people who come in here who want a steel string guitar have never even heard of the Larson Brothers. But you put one of them in their hands like, oh, this is a really good guitar. Um, so are they, are they a failure because they never marketed them well enough? Are they a success because they sound fantastic and they're incredibly beautifully made? It's hard to tell, but most people just don't know what they are, so they become a footnote. Um, so I, that's what fascinates me is the things that become footnotes. Because the obvious, I mean, anyone knows what a great D28 can do. If you're a bluegrass player, that's what you want. But I, I have been dealing with this stuff long enough. I now find that kind of boring because I'm much more interested in what, you know, a Larson guitar or a Harmony Royce McVita guitar can do or an old Stella can do because it's just there's more, I think it's more unexplored territory there. Um, you know, I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm knocking. Uh, bluegrass musicians in particular tend to be the most blinkeredly conservative of all musicians in terms of their instrument choices because it's just like it has to be a banjo like Earl played 
whether it says Gibson on it. has to be a D28 like Lester played. has to be a Gibson F mandolin. Um, you know, and I find that, although, and I, again, I have a, a rack of bluegrass records, you know, an arm and a half long, but I do find that with a lot of modern players, they simply are not willing to look beyond the obvious cliches to find other sounds that might impact them. I had, I'm um, considering myself lucky enough to be on friendly terms with a gentleman named Noam Pekelny, who is, I think, the, the best banjo player in the world. No, no shame on a couple of older banjo players, but I, I've yeah. stood two feet from him and the sound he gets from the instrument is to me absolutely magical. As every note is like this little musical bell coming off the thing. Even when he plays a crappy banjo, he'll pick, just pick something off the wall and his technique is so fine. But he, he told me, we were talking about, I, I have a particular love for Wayman instruments. They're a Philadelphia company. And except for their mandolins, which are universally pretty abysmal, um, most of what they made was really, really good. And I, when I say the mandolins are abysmal, it's because they, they made some kind of an engineering mistake and they all just fold up upon themselves. Even, mm. if, you, even if you find one, they tend, the whole thing tends to be collapsing. But they made the most beautiful uh, banjos in the world to me in the 1920s. I bought one from you. Yeah, they a have this incredibly ago. elaborate, beautiful rim about them. And Gnome had gotten a hold of a, a original five-string Wayman from the 20s, which is a, just an impossibly rare thing because there was no market for expensive five-string banjos in the 1920s. Everyone was playing tenor, plectrum, and jazz. If you were a country player playing the five-string, you couldn't possibly afford a $350 banjo. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. You bought a $20 banjo from Sears. If you're Charlie Poole, you bought a $100 uh, Orpheum. You know, that was as, as much as you were ever going to get. And he told me, yeah, I use it for everything but the straight bluegrass stuff, you know, because even he, the best sounding banjo player in the world, is constrained by the fact that everyone he plays with expects it to sound like a Gibson master tone. Yeah. Even if he's getting the world's most beautiful sound out of a Wayman banjo, I'd be like, are you going to play that Wayman? <laughs> Where's your master tone? You know? <laughs> even though Jerry Garcia played bluegrass on a converted Wayman, it's, it's still, it's, as I'm saying, some people are, I'm, I'm being un, unduly harsh, maybe on, on you know, the bluegrass mindset, but it, it permeates other places too. You play, oh, you, well, let's pull through a Marshall, you know, yeah. you got to play this, you got to play that. Oh, it's the only thing. People tell me, that, oh, it's the only, you got to play this, you got to use rotor sounds, you know, everyone has an opinion of what you got to do. Well, you, what you got to do is what your, you know, what your fingers find, to me, and and it's exciting to have people come in here and kind of break that mold a little bit. I love handing people instruments they don't expect to like, and then they go, "Oh, this is really good," you know. That that's one of the most fun to break down the walls of cliche. You know, I've I've found things for myself that I picked up and thought, I you know, this is not going to work at all, and I went, "Oh, wait a minute," you know. I was looking, I was um, really only played bass for about 15 years. Like I, didn't, I, I could play guitar, I could play chords on guitar, I was writing songs, but I wasn't a you know, guitar player. And through a bunch of accidents of fate in the early 90s, I ended up being the lead guitar player in a band. And it's like, well, crap, I gotta find a guitar that I can really play. And I tried, you know, I tried a couple of Les Pauls and I, it wasn't my thing. And I tried, you know, a bunch of different things. And um, I had a childhood fascination with Gibson Firebirds and Thunderbirds. Me and my friend were just completely obsessed with them. But I, I had, you know, played the basses my whole life. I'd never thought of the guitars. And I bought one at a guitar show thinking I would just flip it. You know, I got it cheap enough. I was going to make some money off. I took it in my studio and plugged it in and went, oh, this is it. 
and I didn't buy it thinking I would ever play it, but I just picked it up, plugged it in, and, I'd ever, and that's, that was 30 years ago, and I, the, if I play a Gibson sawbody, body, it's a Firebird. It's the only one I'm interested in playing at this point. But it was one of those decisions I had to come through. You know, I tried an SG, and that wasn't it. And, you know, with a Fender, for me, it's always a Telecaster. And the younger generations love Jaguars and Jazzmasters, and I appreciate them. I think they're cool, but I, they don't do anything for me as a player. But that's, you know, that's not a patch on the guitar. That's on me. But a lot of people blame the instrument for their own failings or blame the instrument for what doesn't do what they expect it to do. And I, I find that pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the retrofit philosophy and my philosophy are not exactly the same, but they're, they're tied together. But, it, but in terms of just talking about guitars, my, my, I've told this to many people. I'll tell it to you. There's a Sonny Boy Williamson song. Which is, Don't you stop me talking. I tell you everything I know. And that's, that's kind of what, what you get. Um, but you know, to me, the important thing is you, you learn something new every day. You know, just yeah. handling an instrument or listening to a record again and learning something about it you didn't know. I can listen to records I've been listening to for 50 years and still learn something new about them. I'm going through a big 13th floor elevators obsession right now. And I, I had a band in the early 80s called The Trifles. And we were basically, we weren't a 13th floor elevators cover band, but we, you know, we were hugely inspired by them. And I just listened to all those records again yesterday and I learned new stuff about I had a big picture book leading me through their story, which is good. It's a sad story, but um, I think if you're really interested in, in music and the and what creates it, there's really no end to what you can learn from it, and there's really no end to what your brain can process. You know, it's like you put two notes together and you get something. You put a third note in, you get something completely different. I I still find that absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, almost fifty years later, so. You know, I, I think people come to me, you know, saying, oh, you know, oh, I haven't I haven't learned how to play guitar yet. It's like you could always start because yeah. it, it, even if you don't know what you're doing, it's 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 a journey. If you're interested in putting the time in, if you're looking for something, you know, people say, oh, I got to sit down and practice this. If you have to sit down and practice it, you're doing it wrong. You should be going, oh, I can't wait to get home from work and pull out that guitar or that mandolin or that flute or that Mellotron or whatever whatever it is that inspires you. If, yeah, I mean, if, if you have to make yourself do it, you're doing it wrong. I, and one of the fun things about selling these instruments is that I really do think a lot of them are inspiring. And I've had people say, oh, I can't wait. You know, oh, man, it's coming tomorrow. I can't wait till it's here. I opened the case. It was so exciting to open that case. You know, it's just not, you know, when you're a child at Christmas, opening the presents is exciting. But as an adult, I think that's harder and harder to find. Yeah. So I, I, that's my favorite thing about being in this business is help, hoping that a lot of people will get that feeling. You know, and sometimes I've had to, had to spend, you know, frankly, a shitload of money to get it, which I, that to me is not exciting. It's just unfortunate. It's, you know, it's part of the story. That's the way it goes. I don't get excited by the, the I'm not a money person i'm actually terrible with money but um to me the economics of it are as, as uninteresting as could be the history of it's what's interesting but unfortunately it, when i was a kid I, I lived around the corner from the natural history museum and it used to totally piss me off that i couldn't buy the dinosaur bones so you know <laughs> this place you can come in and you can buy the dinosaur bones uh, that's the you know that ankylosaurus skull i always wanted you know <laughs> I, I metaphorically have got that ankylosaurus skull. So if, if there's anything that you can wrap up your life with, you can say that. So Right on, Peter. All right. Thank Jeff, you. what a pleasure. That nice. was Thank you. totally wonderful. Thank you. Well, there you have it. 
This number two, Peter Coleman. What a wonderful, wonderful conversation we had <laughs> with him. That was totally fascinating and really inspiring. We will be going back to Peter quite a bit. I think we'll be going there and uh, he'll talk about certain instruments and comparisons and we'll get very technical with him about Wyman banjos and something like that. Very in-depth. But that was a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I could listen to him talk forever. And I think he would talk forever. <laughs> he says so. He does. He says so himself. So next we have, uh, right after we were talking to Peter, uh, Eli had the great idea of playing the same two tunes, or this, yeah, playing the same tune twice um, on vastly different instruments. And it just fits so well with what Peter was talking about. Um so without further ado, let's have uh, Eli play his two tunes. He'll, he'll introduce them. Here we are at Retrofret, and I'm going to play a little ragtime guitar piece on a Martin 0018 from Fret, and I'm going to play the same ragtime guitar piece, this time on a Gibson-style GB uh, six-string banjo guitar from uh, 3rd podcast. I'm so proud of what we've done so far. Me too. I really truly love this episode. I loved being at Retrofret. Thank you so much to Retrofret for yes. having us. Thank you Retrofret. What a wonderful place to have an interview. Incredible. We had the we had the microphones on an old <laughs> Fender guitar case on top of a coffee table on top of a box. And the yeah, that was a real that's like a 1960s original you know, Fender guitar case that was a really interesting way to get set up that was fun and Peter was so much fun well here we are let's uh last up we have Wyndham Baird again recorded on the stage playing a Woody Guthrie tune Pretty Boy Floyd we'll see you next time see you next time
Shawnee Saturday afternoon His wife beside him in his wagon As into town they rode Their deputy sheriff approached him In a manner rather rude Using vulgar words of language His wife she overheard Pretty boy grabbed the log chain And the deputy grabbed his gun In the fight that followed Folks, that's the end of the Jalopy Corndog Hour with Natalie Jordan and Jeff Wood. Can't thank you enough for listening. So from all of us at the Jalopy Theater and School of Music, if you're not out there loving each other, you best get to it. So long. Jalopy Corndog.